I remember getting called to assemblies like this to listen to some 35-year-old man talk to me about substance abuse. And I remember saying to myself, this is a joke. Why am I here? I'll never be that guy. And I'm on a street corner parking to I've had four overdoses. I have seven felonies on my record. The only thing I remember is glass hitting me. And a police officer grabbed me. They found me two miles away, overdosed in my vehicle, crashed on the side. When I came through, I was in handcuffs, back of an ambulance, on my way to the hospital, and on my way to jail. He said, homeboy, you've been dead for 30 seconds. I'm not the typical speaker. I'm not going to come in here and talk to you about ways to reach your goals and, and all that kind of stuff. I come in here and I tell you my nightmare. I tell you the story that I lived. In 1994, I had the opportunity to sit in a gymnasium like this and pay attention. And today, I would give anything to get back to 1994 and listen. topic of city colleges and local community colleges offering free drug education and free Narcan training. You've never for, done Narcan training before? No, I have done Narcan training before. Okay. But I just think it's interesting that the local community college is offering it at their wellness center. I think that's a great resource to the community. Yeah, well, I mean, everyone's overdosing, so it's like, why not? It's California anyway. Like, yeah. There's a lot of states that don't want to do that shit at all. That's very true. I did it at when I would go to the needle exchange, mm-hmm. and they would give they you'd get hooked up at um, slow bangers. Remember my uh, slow bangers oh, yeah, pen? It pen. looked like a syringe. I do. Um, yeah, I would go there. I'd get fresh rigs. I'd get paid ten to twenty dollars to get a Hep C test. Which I would yeah. inevitably use for dope money. I'd get I'd go to the Narcan training course and get a bunch of Narcan or naloxone, your choice. So you could get the nasal spray or the pulp fiction needle. Oh that no. Don't sign me up for that. I was oh, just yeah. talking to somebody else about that today. But they also give you now fentanyl test strips so you if you you can wait it out, test your dope and see if it's got fentanyl in it. Huh. So, yeah, they've really uh, come a long way. And, you know, it's well, it's good funny. for them. Yeah, Slow Bangers was cool. It's it's kind of a, a triggery name. And, you know, it's funny. I once was about to do a podcast with my friend Marcus, and he gets into my room, and I had the Slow Bangers pen, and it looks like a syringe. You've seen it. It's yeah. got the little blood in it. 
And so he sits on the desk, and the slow banger's pen is sitting there, and he literally thought it was a real syringe, and he just, I could see him getting super uncomfortable. Ooh. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And he's just like, and I'm like, do you really think that's a syringe? That's a pen, bro. And then he we had a good laugh. Hmm. That's, that's really that. nice. So anyway, welcome, welcome, um, brethren, ancestrin of the squad. It is I, Bow Ball Baggins, one ball to rule them all. And I'm joined with my good friend. What up, you guys? It's Zach again. He's on the computer, and I'm he's been, I'm multitasking. You're not a very. I'm good super guy. excited to be back. I like doing this. I think it's a lot of fun. Well, everyone loved you the last time. That's, I couldn't get enough feedback. Uh, messages about you that's real nice um well so let's what do we want to do an in-cap review of where our life has been let's do it man it's been nuts yeah well been a a crazy last couple of months yeah so we're both finally in phase four of the program hallelujah applause to us applause power back high five air five Uh, i almost didn't well i got held back a week yeah because you're naughty (laughs) I was caught vaping in my room and got a ride up, and they held me back a week, and that it wasn't it wasn't that fun. It sucked because then I, you know, couldn't get my phone or my car accessible, and that whatever. Oh, I'm not gonna lie, it was slightly funny. Cause oh it's yeah, like you're so close. Well, I, everyone. Vapes in their room. It's just sometimes you get caught. And uh, (laughs) that was the... That is true. It was crazy because, yeah, um, I was sitting in the second floor during... uh, And it was like five minutes till tracking group or whatever. And it was super stuffy in there and I had a long sleeve on. And I was like, fuck this. I'm going to run and change my shirt. So I run in and change my shirt. I throw off this long sleeve and then I hit my vape. And a staff member walks in and is like, aren't you supposed to be in group? And so I tried to talk and be like, I got five minutes, and then just vape was just coming out of my mouth and <laughs> smiles and laughs, and he's like, you're going to feel real stupid when you get held back a week. And that's what he did. And uh, back. Yeah, they were not happy with me about that. But it's, what, what did they say? It's progress, not perfection. So what? Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know, man. This is what I want to say about fourth phase, because this is, like, a lot to take in. You're basically working and going to school. You don't have to deal with program elements here. You leave freely, and you have your phone and a car if you're legally able to drive, and it's like a sober living. Yeah, so it's chill. So I've been dealing... It, it's chill, but it's also a big responsibility because it's like this, right? Now, for me at least, like, chime in if you agree. I feel this weird adjustment period where I went nine months, no social media or very little. Mm -hmm. I had to, like, communicate with people through email or handwritten letters. And now I'm kind of flung back into it where I have my phone, I'm online talking to people again. And I'm back out on campus and dealing with, with people and uh, job interviews. So now it's all these new challenges, right? Mm. Um, and so it's really easy. Like, like, I have to force myself to be driven to carry all this shit out and do all this shit, S- do cover letters for resumes, turn them in, go get, like, all cleaned up 
for a job interview. You helped me buy pants. I didn't even own pants. I know. You guys, that was an experience. Getting this guy to buy pants was probably one of the most interesting experiences I've gone through with him. Why he didn't want to buy pants, I don't know. I don't like pants. I'm from California. You don't need to own pants. I don't like wearing underwear, but you should do it every day. (laughs) I mean, that's just truth. You know, free ball it, whatever you want to do. There's plenty of people that are successful and, and go commando, Zach. That's true. I'm pretty sure Britney Spears has done it. Has? She probably does it all the time. Well, I'm Or more it. like Lindsay Lohan. Oh. Trash. What's wrong with Lindsay? Lilo? Yeah. What's wrong with her? Don't get me started. Well, Did just, you watch her last movie? No. Because you didn't even hear of it. That's why. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, what about Britney's last movie? Britney's, not, been, Britney's not an actress, though. She's a singer. Whatever, dude. Whatever. <laughs> it happens. So, well, you know, actually, Lilo had a little stint in Greece where she opened up Lindsay Lohan Beach Club. And then she made an MTV reality show about it. So I guess she's I maybe doing well. I don't know anything about what you're talking Gosh, about. Gosh, have you been living under a rock, Brian? Yes, it's called Rehab. Oh. The Rock of Rehab. I don't... The Rock of Rehab. And... That's oh my good. God, that's a reality show right there. I was just about to say, man, Holy I think we should... Fuck. We If we filmed stuff that went on here, people would be like, what the actual That's fuck? the most frustrating thing about recording with you because we love... We're like the gossip gals of... Uh, this uh, inpatient treatment facility and there's been a lot of fucking drama that's been going down and mm-hmm. I wish I was at the liberty to indulge everybody about some of the shady scandalous shit that's been going on here but I and I almost did with you but I had to I had to check myself before I wrecked myself because client resident confidentiality is it's a, it's a powerful tool. You have to respect it. And For sure. Well, I, let, I, I don't want to put other people's business out there. That's not right. Even if I just say this person or that person. But a lot of you out there listening have talked to me on Messenger. And if it's a private message, I can indulge people on some of the things. I just can't speak about them live on the airwaves. Does that make sense? Total sense. So a lot of my friends that, you know, maybe listen to the show and then we became friends online or whatever or emailed me, then I could indulge you about some juicy details, but not on here, not while the mic is recording. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. Jinx. Yeah. So that is all the more reason why, if you are listening, why... Don't you send us an email or, you know, like our social media, message us on that, uh, slide into the DMs on Twitter, message the Facebook page, Instagram, or my Brian Unk Albert troll account on Facebook, but especially email. And um, we just need, if, I, if you could, I'm not asking too much, I don't really, I'm not asking for money. Just asking for some, some you know, social media attention. Yeah, is that that's not too much to ask. No, not at all. No. Okay. I really like uh, when I was on the last time and people sent messages, instantly it's, talking about how much they love you. I'm fabulous. That's why. <laughs> but um, it was just really cool to hear um, everybody from different parts of the world were listening or 
you know, they thought something was funny, or I, I really enjoyed that. So please, please send stuff in and make it attention to Zach because it makes Brian jealous of me, and I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just being frank. Hey, attention about you just means they're listening, so you know what? That's it makes true. me feel special, well, too. Well, and since I'm only a guest commentator on this podcast... Well, yeah, if it wasn't really for attention you, to there'd you, there'd be no messages about me. Or if there wasn't for you, but for me, there'd be no messages about you. No, that's not true. <laughs> Remember when we were walking the other day and that guy honked at me? Oh, I wasn't with you. No. Okay, that's a weird story. I was walking the other day, leaving a meeting... And who was I walking with? I was walking with Tim. Of course. And so anyways, I was walking and this guy has his windows down and he's playing music. And all of a sudden I hear this, ow! And then he honks his horn. And you, you're positive it was directed at you. Absolutely positive. <laughs> there was nobody else around. Well, unless it, it was for Tim. It could have been for him. I don't know. You're convinced every time you walk these streets that every honk, every whistle is all directed at you. And then <laughs> you do this weird convoluted thing where you yell at them for giving you attention, but you secretly desire the attention. I don't yell at them in certain ways. Okay, like, well, if I'm walking and someone gives me a look... And it's like a look of disdain where they just have their eyes bugged out <laughs> and their lip curled and they're just like, eh. I'm like, what the fuck? Yes, but, but you're loud and animated on the street for I'm, everyone to see. So when people are alarmed and they're like, what the fuck is going on over there? Well, because they should they're, mind their business. Okay, well, you saying. startle normies and then you're like, well, what are you looking at? And it's a little funny. I'm. It is funny, and unfortunately, I'm one of those people that I, I like. I seek that attention. I but then you of. yell at them for giving you any attention. Well, it's because they didn't give it to me the way I wanted it. <laughs> Gosh, I'm selfish and self-seeking. What do you want from me? That's true. That's why I'm locked down in the rehab, the rock of rehab. I want to hear about you. What is going on in your life since you've been in fourth phase? Man, lots of good stuff. Okay, let's hear it. So, um... Let me just say one thing, one positive thing about putting yourself in a one-year inpatient program. Okay. You get a lot of time to work on yourself. I'm gonna be true. This is me. I'm going to be serious right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you get a lot of time to work on yourself. You have a lot of time to self-reflect. You have um, opportunities to learn from your mistakes, grow from experiences that you've had. And I really tried to buckle down and do that this year, or this last year, and... I definitely became comfortable with myself and comfortable with situations that had happened. I learned to put myself first in things and not worry 100% about what other people were thinking. And there's a certain amount of freedom in, in having these revelations monthly or weekly or whenever you have them. But I got to fourth phase and... You I jumped had, right into it. You hit the ground running. Oh, yeah, I did. I was I didn't want to be left behind. But you know my life before I came to before I came down here and before I entered this program was full of normalcy anyways. I went to work, I graduated college, I managed a household, I had a relationship, etc. Um but I just wasn't happy in it cuz it's not what I really wanted. And what do you really want? I don't know. Yeah, I'm figuring that out too. I don't think that people okay, this is my opinion, but I don't think you wake up in the morning and you're like, 
I want A, B, and C, and if I get those, I'll be happy. Because me personally, I wake up in the morning and I have obtained A and B. I want to go to school and I want to have a job. But yet I'm still like, man, there's something else missing. Yeah, and, I get that. Um, so I feel like it's it's always evolving and always changing. And I think that's growth. And I think that's a positive thing. A lot of people come at it and they have like a negative connotation with it. And I don't think it's like that at all. I think it's how you look at it. You're optimistic. Basically. I'm very optimistic. All right, yeah. Well, what I want to know is what challenges how are you facing since be- having this new sense of freedom? That's a good question. Um, you know, like, I'll give you my example from today. So in fourth phase, in, in the program that we're in, you work hard all these months and you do all these steps. So that way, when you're in fourth phase, you have more freedom, you're able to get a job, you're able to go to school, and you're able to kind of reacclimate into society. And today I had a huge road roadblock where I had to take a day off of work and I wasn't able to do what I normally do as far as my routine and I had to go to court and I had to follow up with that. Can and, you, are you at liberty to discuss that right now? or Yeah, so in 2018, I decided it would be a good... I was loaded on drugs, of course. Pain pills. Pain pills. Obviously. I was buying, I don't know, probably 200 bucks a day of oxys. How many oxys yeah. you get for $200? It just depends on the milligrams. But if I would buy the 30s, like the blueberries... The blueberries. That's what I call them. Um, I don't know. They were 40 bucks each. So, like not that many. Half. Yeah. And I would take them all at once. And then Dude, I... that's astronomical. I would get five 80 milligram oxys for 100 bucks. Yeah, it was, it was highway robbery. Yeah. That's why the American government is not cracking down on the importation of drugs. Because it makes too much money. Wow. I'm serious. No, that's I word just, right there. I didn't think you were you fuck you fucking give me shit for talking conspiracy theories, but <laughs> that's growth from you. I agree fully. Yeah. Okay. So, so anyway. So anyway, so I, I have to go to court. Um, because but what what happened back then to land you in court? Because what happened in two thousand and eighteen, uh, and again, for me personally, drugs made me do things that were completely out of my character, but. I was um, staying with my one of my really close friends, and I've known him since I was five. His grandparents have always been like grandparents to me. You know, I've, I've always called them grandma and grandpa. And okay. so I was staying at their house, um, like on the weekends or something, just to get out of my depression and out of my fucking anxiety. And I was still using, and his grandpa always needed help doing something. Like, I need something from the store, or... I I need, uh, can you help me clean this? You know, stuff like that. So I went to the store one day for them, and uh, I was out of money, and I had their debit card. <laughs> and I thought it would be a good idea to take cash back. And I continued to do that for months and months and months. So wait, you kept their debit card and you cashed back knowing their pin and everything. Yeah. How so much I, money did you extort from this poor... I know. I know. This <laughs> poor old man. Uh, I'm surprised I didn't get a charge like elder abuse or something like that. <laughs> That's fucking crazy. How much money did you... Um, It ended up being like, I think $1,100. That's not that bad. No. Um, but, but it's still 
quattro no. digits. Yeah, it was it was it was bad in the aspect of they didn't deserve that. Of and course not. They opened their home to me, and they opened their hearts to me, and I just took full advantage. Yeah, you know, so I did some scumbag things, and and then there was the times that I was at their house and fucking tripping on balls because I'm on so many drugs. You know, it's benzos, just like, pain pills. I was just taking anything I could put in my mouth to numb the shit I didn't want to deal with. Is what anything. it boils down to. Anything. <laughs> Stop that, pervert. So, <laughs> so anyway, so um. So that happened, and I didn't even know this until, what, like maybe a month ago? I went to go pay a a traffic ticket, and the lady was like, oh, you can pay your traffic ticket, no problem, but did you know you have a warrant out for your arrest? And I'm like, oh, damn. So wait, is the warrant because they pressed charges? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so they pressed charges. Um, So I got a charge for theft with a Visa card. That's what the charge was. That was a misdemeanor or felony? Misdemeanor. Okay, thank God. And so, but, being that you're on probation, it was a violation of probation. Oh. So, that's why I had to go to court today. What kind of probation are you on? Is it Felony probation. Formal. Oh, you're on formal probation. Formal felony probation, because years ago I thought it would be a good idea to abuse my power as an insurance agent and steal thousands of dollars. (laughs) So you got check fraud. More than actually well, I just got, fraud, fraud. I just got fraud because I <laughs> fraudulated a claim. I thought I told that story on the last podcast, but I don't know. I don't remember. But anyways, yeah. So, um, yes, I did some crazy, dirty shit that I would never do in my right mind now. Um, because again, I think that the drugs put me in this weird place, and it just uh, really messes with my schizophrenia, and it messes with my mental illness. Okay, and yeah, I can only imagine. It gets really loud in my head. Um, so, anyways. I don't have schizophrenia, and when I'm on drugs sh- and I'm in a psychosis, shit gets weird shit. in my head. I, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. It's yeah. it's pretty intense for me. And um, so I went to court today, and they violated my probation, and my probation officer was like, okay, you're going to get 90 days for the violation. In jail? In jail. And then it's going to be 45 days with halftime, of course. And then, um, but because you've been doing a program and you've been doing well, I'm going to ask for them to do an electronic monitor. And I'm like, oh, that sucks. Wow. But again, it's like one of those things. Wait, 45 days electronic monitor? 45 days of electronic monitoring, which I'm kind of like, okay, that's really dumb. First off, why would you waste all that it's energy and effort too. and it's expensive yeah I'm like I'm not going anywhere I've been in the same place for a year now I'm not I'm not going anywhere like calm your tits and so I went to the judge this morning and at what, first what uh, county is this in? Santa Barbara oh yeah so you just went up to this court right no here. I went to I had to go to Santa Maria cause that's where the 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 district or whatever that the crime was committed so, oh, Jesus. Yeah, so I get up to the podium this morning, which is nice because when I went to court the last time in 2018, I had to wait, and I was the very last person called. So I get called this morning, and the uh, the judge wants, uh, not the judge, excuse me, the district attorney wants to remand me and take me into custody. Immediately? Immediately. What the fuck? And, but he read the letter that the director of this program wrote, and then I, I, being the prepared, organized, left-handed person I am, <laughs> I went in there with my employment letters, my school schedule, 
I went in there with my appointments for my uh, psychiatric treatment. Good on you. Um, that's what I was getting organized yesterday. Yeah. And the judge read all of it, and he's like, I don't think it makes any sense to take you out of what you're in right now. Of course. So I basically got the violation acknowledged, got that removed and revoked, so I don't have to do the electronic monitoring. This is a good lesson for anyone listening. If you have a yeah. court date and you're about to stand in front of a judge, here's some tips. First of all, dress in yes. tailor-made suits, if you can, preferably men's warehouse, because if you have baggy, like, slacks, no, you need tight, tailored pants, fit, be look professional, be presentable, clean, groomed. Yeah. That's the first thing. Presentation's a must. Second of all, you need to get, you can't just say, I'm going to school and working. You need paperwork and documentation proving yeah. that. Because they're not going to just take your word for it. Get your ducks in a row. Actually prepare. Take a little bit of time to try and not get your ass locked up. Because the judge, yeah, that's I did the same thing. When I had to deal with all the issues when I was in court, I had to get all this documentation showing that I was completing DUI classes, uh, finishing this and that, paying bills for or fees and contributing to trying to rehabilitate myself. Yeah. Cuz I almost had to get an ankle monitor. I told you this probably. Mm-hmm. I was supposed to do 19 days house arrest, which is nothing. That's so dumb. For that DUI. When I crashed my car in Goleta. We just I just told this story on the last episode, but they uh the thing was, is I was still relapsing, and every time I was about to go to Santa Maria to get the ankle monitor, I knew they were going to drug test me, and if I failed the drug test, I go straight to jail. Yeah. So I knew I would. I was just a fuck up. I kept using, and then being like, I know I'm going to test dirty, so I'd call and kept pushing back the date, postponing, rescheduling. Yeah. Until finally, the sheriff at the house arrest office was like, "Yeah, you're the judge wants to see you." And that's when I had an intervention done on me, and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go here. And then I just told the judge, thank God the, the I was supposed to be seen here in this county because they know a lot about the inpatient we're in, and they were like, oh, that's a great program. Yeah. So, But the judge opted for me to do 12 months here in lieu of 19 days house arrest, so I didn't even have to get the ankle monitor. Yeah. It's just crazy. Nice. Like, you sit back and think about the the justice system and... You know, like, okay, I think about it. Like, when I was sitting in the courtroom today, there was people there, like, someone was there for being arraigned for, uh, like, pretrial services for murder. Oh, my God. Are you serious? I saw them on the news, like, two weeks ago. I'm like, shit, that's some serious stuff. You saw them on the news, yeah. and then you saw them in a courtroom? We were they in the, shackles, or They what? were in shackles, and Jeez. his girlfriend was crying right next to us, and I'm just like, man, that's some serious stuff. You know, why are you people pissing around with charges of 19 days for house arrest or 45 days for an ankle monitor for somebody who stayed in the same place for the past year and still has months to go? Like, yeah. it just doesn't make sense to me, so... I get it, man. It's just... It's, it's you warped. know what it is? You know what it is, Zach? It's money. All about money. Everything's about money. It's a capitalist system. It's a revolving yeah. door, and they want those greenbacks. Yeah. Well, and that's, They don't care how big or small the conviction is. 
they, I mean, I won't say that because like if you do what you did, they're willing to work with you. But anyway, well, good for you. So that's all done and no ankle monitor, which I'm kind of okay. Wait, so you don't have to do any ankle monitor now? I don't have to do any ankle monitor, but I have to go back and still deal with the charges for the theft. Which my plan at that point is to have just advanced, paid the restitution back to them and been like, yo, I know I fucked up. I paid the money back. I did all this other stuff. My program, my school, my work, etc. And hopefully the judge is like, that's cool. Yeah. And then just gives me added probation or added fees or something along that lines. I don't know exactly what it's going <sighs> to entail, but it's stressful. But I will say this. Months and months ago, like when I first came down here and entered this program, situations like that would have stressed me out and made me so anxious. That you want to use. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and this week alone, fudge. This week has been sucky for testing me and my limitations and my comfortability and all that crap. But Me too. I felt really comfortable in the courtroom calm, collected, organized, and um, I walked out of there, my head held high, and I didn't have to drink or use over it, and I didn't have to um, work myself up into this frenzy over it. Yeah. So. No, it's been weird. It's been, like, reintegrating into, like, responsibility has been challenging, because we've been in this safety bubble for nine months, where we kind of just... Have to be here, exist, yeah. be sober, and take on recovery elements, right? You know, go to meetings, integrate, network with the fellowship. Now, I have a phone again, and I'm, like, connected to the outside world. Mm. Just going through my memories on Facebook, I, uh, like, I hate when those pop up. You know, some of them are horrible, because I will see posts I made... And see mistakes I made, mm-hmm. see how just horrible I was, and then you'll see memories with people that used to be in your life that are no longer in your life. Yep. And then that brings back weird feelings of regret or maybe resentment, and then it's just like it's it's hard to do. Like, well, yeah. not hard, but you just have to break out away from that like mental or emotional quicksand when you get caught up in that bullshit. And then you'll maybe see people online that you used to talk to that may have distanced themselves from you, which is weird shit. And then you'll mm-hmm. think of opportunities lost because you of the mistakes you made. It's, it's stupid. And then not only am I doing that, but then I'm having to, like, I hate the job hunt. Yeah. I like fun. having a job, getting in there and doing my first day and then getting comfortable with it, but having to like meet all these new people and then do cover letters and like just put myself out there like hire me. Yeah. It's, I it's it's uncomfortable. It's made me realize and just looking at where I'm at in life, where I want to progress in life, I really have very little time to take on anything mm. other than my own growth right now you know I think it's interesting too when you're just going back to the comment you made about um, your Facebook memories oh it's horrible you know it's it's the 23rd of January and I've been to two funerals yeah you and I went to it one yeah it's horrible oh it was it was good to go but it was just really emotional no yeah no it's um 
I think what that presents to me and what it reminds me of, um, just like when you talk about the memories and stuff like that, I've known six people this year since January 1st to January 23rd that have passed away. Mm-hmm. And some of them are because of, four of them are because of addiction. Two of overdose them have been, be, yeah, overdose or, um, you it's know, hard. whatever. But, and then other two were just because of like regular health issues. But it's just, it just reminds me that this disease wants me to die and that's where it could take me. And then secondly, it just reminds me that there's opportunities for me every day and I want to take advantage of them. Let me ask you... I don't want to be left behind. Yeah, no, yeah. Uh, you're you're hustling. But let me ask you this. When you deal with the loss of a loved one due to overdose, do any insecurities creep in and affect you mentally or emotionally? Because I know I have a bad habit of comparing myself or my progress to others. So when I see, like this holiday season was pretty rough for me seeing a lot of people go out who had more clean time than me who maybe I thought were running a better program than me Mm -hmm. then my initial thoughts were like well if that person went out or if that person died who had done all this other stuff that I may have been not slacking on but not as strong in my abilities Mm. what chances do I have if they went out Right. But at the same time, I have to step outside of that and be like, look, I'm only seeing surface value of of them, and they must, might have a lot of underlying issues. I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. So I have to really break away from that and be and just remind myself, well, I need to be that much more on top of it than I was yesterday. Right. Yeah, you or have else to be I diligent. Have, I have potential to end up right alongside all my fallen loved ones. Yeah. It's fucked up, but does that affect you ever? Because... Yeah, it does. It affects me, and the way that I've... I personally have not had... You know, I'm the only one in my family, my immediate family. Like, I have extended cousins and um, cousins that I didn't even know about sometimes that I have found out that were, you know, abusing alcohol and drugs, but I've never had somebody super, super close to me pass away. The only relatable experience I have is um, the gentleman that we went to his memorial service. And I say that because that person was, you know, not my blood relation, but he helped me and listened to me at a time in my life when I needed it the most. He played a very integral part of shaping who I am today. Mm -hmm. And um, it's really fucking tragic that he's gone because if if it wasn't for him I I may not be in the exact same place I am today like he helped me extensively with um, healing yeah if that makes sense no that that makes sense so it's um, it's just weird and surreal and new and foreign being kind of slowly reintegrated back into society. I mean, we still have the accountability because we can get random at any time and blah, 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 and we're still in rehab. But now that we're kind of one step closer to being out there in the real world, Mm -hmm. it's it's very different, especially now 
because before I would do all these outpatient programs and I was still like out on the outs, yeah. you know? Still doing everything daily and yeah, just driving around that. on my phone. Like I may not have been abusing drugs, or maybe I every now and then I would try and get away with getting around on testing because I'm out there. Yeah, and even if I wasn't doing that, I was abusing or cons- being consumed by other things like mm-hmm. you know uh, relationships or or more socially acceptable substances or social media or or abusing what I mean I'm a fucking hopeless drug addict. Yeah. So I can the have the potential to abuse anything. Mm-hmm. So I always have to keep myself in check. But then once you've been in here for 9 months, it's like it's a lot more real where it's like, okay, I just spent almost a whole I've almost spent a whole year here. Mm. I don't want to go back out there just and just fuck it all, fuck off this these last yeah. nine months or twelve months, you know. I think a good analogy for it is your bird in a nest, and you're done incubating, and you're done having your mom help you, and then she pushes you out of the nest, and she says, "Okay, fly." That's what being in this program is totally like. That's what being in fourth phase is, which, for me, has not been a bad thing. It's been different, and I'm so okay different. with different. Um, it's just, I could see where other people could have issues with it, or maybe they didn't prepare enough or they weren't ready. Um, and they panic in a weird way. They kind of like cocoon and... Yeah. And then those thoughts of self-doubt come back to them maybe. And so it's... And then they act out. And then they, yeah. And then they do things that they were doing when they were still in their addiction. Because that's what's comfortable. Because... When they're too outside their comfort zone. Oh, like you're really smart. I thought I oh couldn't read. I know. So on a side note, you guys, um, to publicly shame Brian because you know I love doing that. Um, we'll be walking somewhere, or we'll be like, this is my favorite one when we go to a restaurant, and he's reading the menu, and I'm he like, he says I can't read. I'm like to have all our friends. I'm like, my friend, it's okay. I'll order for you. I know you can't read the menu. I have a great... <laughs> look, I'm a fucking catch. I can boil water oh. and read at an eighth grade level, so someone needs to... Someone needs to husband marry. you up. Exactly. Damn. I've said this many times. I can read everybody. <sighs> I'm sorry. That's just so funny. No. And everybody else thinks it's funny. Just go along with the laugh, buddy. <sighs> Whatever. It's good. Just go along with the laugh. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Man, this last bit of conversation has been intense. A little like bit. It's been very deep. Well, let's switch it up. Yeah. Should we update them and tell them you did not get to do American Idol auditions? Oh my gosh, you guys. I forgot to tell. Okay, let me tell you that story Speak real quick. quick about it, please. This is awful. This is absolutely awful. I felt discriminated against, I felt violated. It was bad. So I go to, um, I go to American Idol tryouts. And here in the city that we live in, and I get down there, I'm ready to go, I'm all jazzed up, I'm super excited, filling out my paperwork, and they're like... You're too old. You're too old. And I was like, excuse me, bitch. She's like, you can't audition, you're above the age limit. How does it feel to be too old, or be told you're too old? It's not good. I immediately (laughs) went and got a Botox injection and a facial. (laughs) Because I felt so awful about myself. I was like, oh my gosh, this is bad. 
It, and it was. It made me feel like crap. I hated it. So, uh, needless to say, I won't be on a TV screen near you anytime soon, so you're going to have to listen to me on the podcast waves. Well, you could be great so. at being a YouTuber or something. I I probably... Starting your own American Idol. Yeah. We could call it... No, I don't even know, actually. I don't know. We could... Yeah, that's a great idea. I'm not giving up on my dreams, you guys. <laughs> that's the number one message I'd like to get across. Nice. Don't give up on your dreams. But with that, it's almost dinner time. What are we doing tonight? We're going to... The... We're going to a meeting at the local vet's hall. Wait, but we have phase four tracking group and then a meeting? But we have tracking group and then a meeting. Dude, I still have so much homework to do. Tracking group is going to go quick, though. How? Okay. Because I'm excited. I'm, I'm not going to let people sit there and, and uh, I'm not going to co-sign their bullshit. I'm going <laughs> to check them on it and I'll be like, no, you're lying. <laughs> no, that's trash. I can't wait to see that. I, I'm just going to stand back. Just... Buckle up. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be a wild ride. All right, so let's almost wrap this up. Maybe I should tell one more story. It's a quick one. So I don't know if you remember, because you were from the Central Coast, but back in the day when I... Back in my day. Don't even make me feel old. Well, it's not my fault you're 40 and can't read. I'm not 40. I'm... And I look much younger. People tell me all the time. Well, thanks to prepubescence and pre-diabetic comas, yeah. Never had a pre... Look. Okay, anyways. Let's not... How dare you? I'm sorry that you have health issues. Look, I look very young, and my drug abuse is very good to me. I get compliments all the time. About being a drug abuser? You look older than me, and you're younger than me. Brian. (laughs) Brian. I've had a harder life than you. Okay. You never even boofed. <laughs> Doesn't mean I didn't do bad things. That's true. Or take large quantities of stuff. Okay, anyways. So, I don't know if you remember this, but, you know, back in the early 2000s, there w- we in San Luis celebrated a little thing called Mardi Gras. Oh my god, yes. And in downtown Slow, Mardi Gras was epic. Wild. I graduated in, like, 01, so... I didn't really get to experience this only for the first few years. I took a year off after high school, then got into college. So around 03, 04, we're doing Mardi Gras. But there was this epic 2004 Mardi Gras riot in San Luis Obispo. Do you remember that? I remember. I don't remember that specifically. I remember It was the last Mardi Gras. Yeah, I remember slow. them, like, cracking down super hard. And so it must have been in relation to that. Well, yeah, around 04, right before Mardi Gras was about to happen in 2004, the city of San Luis Obispo was like, we don't want, there's going to be no Mardi Gras this year. Trash. Out, they didn't like outside party goers coming, and it was just too many crazy kids. San Luis Obispo, downtown Slow is already a wild college party town, mm-hmm. and, you know, fights break out, weird shit happens, and the locals are like, we're having enough of this, it's too crazy. So they were trying to be like, no Mardi Gras this year. Well, all the kids at Cal Poly were like, fuck that. We're going to do Mardi Gras anyway. And there's a little apartment complex that all the college kids go to uh, and rent out. And it's called Mustang Village. You yeah. Know about it very oh, well. I've been to Mustang Village. Yeah, it's a lot of crazy, weird, crazy college partiers there. So I was like, yes. Me and my friends were like, we're going to Mardi Gras because all the kids were already going, like, we're going to celebrate anyway. Yeah. 
And so I'm hanging out with my friends. Uh, one of my friends, which I won't drop his name, has a bunch of triple stack ecstasy pills. I think he had two. He had ones that were called X-Files, and then he had ones that were called, there were four clovers. They looked like four-leaf clover. Now, the X-Files were laced with cocaine. The four-leaf oh clovers were laced with LSD. I take one of each. That's wild. I'm rolling balls, and we're driving up there, and we've been drinking. I we uh, I believe it was Jaeger Bombers Ugh. and Fireball. Horrible mix. And, you know, the Red Bull, you dunk the shot of Jaeger into the Red Bull, you drink it. I'm... Ugh. Don't try this at home, kids. Uh, but we drive up there, and we go to, you know, there's, like, parties in every apartment mm. complex. So we're going from room to room, partying. There's beer. Well, tensions flared because the city had already banned Mardi Gras, and everyone was doing it anyway. So there was this insane riot on the streets of San Luis Obispo, and cops stormed everywhere. Stormed downtown Mustang Village. There was cops on horseback, cops oh in riot gosh. gear, and they were. It, it, it got and then so they were trying to crack down. And these drunk college kids, like there was like, I don't know, like five thousand. There was like in the thousands. There was thousands. That's of co- insane. Yeah, and they're all drunk, all going crazy. There's beads and and, and uh. breasts being flashed, and drunk, drunk children everywhere. So we're in the midst of this, walking down the street, and cops are just going crazy everywhere. I saw, like, it it got to one point where the crowd was trying to, like, turn on, like, fight back against the cops because they were, like, drunk and rowdy, like, fuck you. And then just there was, like, you know, it was, like, the first shot of the revolution. Just, like, shit went crazy. And I'm tripping balls. So I don't know at what point shit went awry, but then cops just started beating on everybody. I saw a cop on a horseback dra- grabbing a girl by a ha- the hair, hair and dragging her across. What? On horseback, I saw pepper. What was it, those pepper, pepper spray? Ba- no, not pepper spray. Those, those paintball guns oh. with the pepper bullets. Yeah. People getting shot with those. It was fucking crazy. So I start to me and my friends. My friend, my one friend D grabs me and he's like, we gotta get the fuck out of here. So we run. I, I don't even know where I'm parked. And even if I didn't know where I was parked, it's like, how am I going to drive out of here? And I'm paranoid. Yeah. There's like DUI checkpoints on top of that. So I was like, no, there's no way I'm getting in my car and driving. So we run all the way down, try to get back to downtown. I somehow black out. Oh, jeez. Because I'm so drunk and I've been running and we were smoking weed. So I'm like, just like. I, I somehow come out of a blackout, and I'm in downtown, and there's this place in downtown. It's called Gumball Alley. Yeah. Oh, that place is gross. Yeah. It's an alley in uh, downtown Slow, and there's just gum, chewed gum. Chewed gum up nasty all over gum. the walls. I'm down there, and there's, like, it's like a, a labyrinth of alleyways, and I come out, and I'm like, how did I get here? I'm throwing up, and I, I'm, like, lost. I, I've lost my friends. I'm by myself. And I'm hearing screams and I'm smelling <coughs> smoke. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I'm just like, you know, like in my early 20s. And so I, I don't, I, I, ba- I barely even, and back then I had like a Nokia brick phone, you know? With the like, snake game on it? Yes. That game was fun. So it's not like, I, it, I mean, texting was like pretty primitive back then. You had to 
dial seven four times to get an S on it. It was just like, this is how old I am. <laughs> so somehow I run into my buddy who works at one of the bars. It's called the library. And I'm like, dude, he was DJing. And I was like, dude, I need to hide out here, dude. There's cops everywhere. So I went into the back little green room of the library, passed out on their couch, and somehow I'm just out. And when I wake up, I'm in the backseat of my friend's car. I guess he carried me out because they were closing, carried me in his car, and I'm, I'm in the backseat of his car, and um, he's parked in front of his house. I guess he, I was too fucked up to get into his house. Damn. There's puke on Ew. my shirt. I think I might have peed myself a little. And he lived down the street from my where that I lived. so gross, Brian. So I get out of my friend's car. It's freezing. I'm covered in my own bodily fluids. I am hung over to all hell. Serotonin depleted. And I walk through the graveyard, up the hill, and trudge it back to my house. And I try to sneak back into my room. And uh, I end up breaking my window because I pushed on it too hard and it popped out. But somehow the glass didn't break. It was just like the actual pain of the window. Like, yeah, pushed it off. Oh, my gosh. I, I strip out of my clothes and I just fall on my bed. And then I sleep for like two days. And that's my story. Intense. Yeah, little, that's like too wild. much. That's just one of many. Yeah. You know? See, no, I. You never done that. That's not cool. Ch- no. <laughs> I haven't can see that I have. Wasn't I couldn't hold my alcohol very well. No, I haven't drank in like three years, so yeah, it's just totally understand that. Anyway, you guys, I need to segue into this interview because I had a guest on. We just want to have a little, I don't know, in real life update of where we're at tell a quick war story but i had someone on and i want to segue and introduce them um her name is dr callie estes her and her husband tim came on and i interviewed them she is a addiction specialist coach life coach um celebrity coach uh you know regarding addiction and treatment for those um you know, upper echelons of people. Um, and and not just them, but everybody. And she has an amazing book that she wrote. It's a number one bestseller. It's called I Married a Junkie, Put to the Test by Addiction, Love, and Life. Kind of about her dealing with her husband's addiction. It's a very great book. She's got two websites. Well, one of them, you can get to know more about her at CallieEstes.com. And if you want to know about the services she offers, go to the AddictionsCoach.com. I will include a link in the description. Um, she's a very interesting person. She's got a plethora of of training and um, experience, 25 years working with clients. Um, what else can I say? She's got a PhD from DSU in psychology and life coaching, a master's degree at WCU, an undergraduate from PSU, international certification as a drug and alcohol counselor, master certified addictions professional, um, 24 certifications over 20 years of experience as a personal trainer, 
yoga teacher, Pilates teacher, food addiction specialist, life coach. She's just all around the board, got all this like training experience, very interesting person. Mm. And I had her on, so I wanted to... Seemed really interesting. She is. Uh, I, you know, it was an honor to have her on. I do want to say I kind of suck at interviewing, so um, I did my best. I, I, It's hard to do a, a successful podcast inside rehab, so just to get like these kind of things booked and scheduled and, and then have them on has been challenging enough, but um, hopefully I did a good job. I need to, when we have, when I have my friends on like you, it's so easy for the flow to go naturally, but yeah, I get super nervous when I have someone on that I've never met before. I, uh, next week on next Friday's episode, I have um, uh, someone, another podcaster on, her name's B Casper, and she hosts this amazing podcast called that time I got arrested and I was doing mix downs on it the other day and I was like, wow, I got so nervous. I started stuttering like a, like a, oh. like a little bee. But yeah, B Casper will be on next week's. So shout outs to her. I, I really appreciate her coming on. But this week, it's Tim and Callie Estes. So enjoy that. Let's say goodbye, Zach. What do you want to say to everyone out there? Oh man, that's a good question. Um... Let's see. I don't know. That's hard. Come on, man. I know. I was trying to think of something funny to say, but nothing's coming to me. You're not very funny today. You know what? Because we're <laughs> talking about all this serious stuff, and I'm kind of in this counselor mode at the moment, and I'm know. like, Ugh. I'm so brain dead from cramming for school. It's I not know. funny. You know, I'm going to say, um, uh, be true to who you are, Aww. make good choices in life, and be kind to other people. Good. Oh, wow. Dropping knowledge bombs. Cool. I know. Bomb. Anyway, I love you guys. Uh, thank you for all the feedback and for reaching out to me. Um, you know, please email us. Message us. Yes. Like, comment, subscribe, all that. But with that, just be safe out there. And um, I don't know. Thanks for listening. <laughs> that sounds real good. Yeah. And peace, love, and all the above. coach and I also am founder and CEO of the Addictions Academy and I have been in the addiction space for 25 years. My personal battle is food addiction and diet pills and together my husband and I wrote a book called I Married a Junkie and he's here with me. Yeah food addiction that's got to be really like challenging to deal with because I mean you still have to surround yourself with food but you have to like you know use it in like in a balanced sort of way like what was that experience like for you well it was interesting because food food and mood are tied and then depending on what you eat how you respond to what you eat makes it even worse because then you're really cranky and then you just kind of keep eating more junk and then you can take the diet pills to lose the weight so it's a really bad cycle that you have to learn how to break. 
Yeah, and um, from my understanding, you know, most diet pills I've come across are usually spiked with some type of stimulant or amphetamines, so that's a substance abuse issue in itself. Yeah, it, well, my thing was ephedra, mahawang, and, and guarana, which is basically, ephedra is basically meth, and um, guarana is pure <laughs> caffeine, and then mahawang is the stuff off an asthma pump. So I would oh, use that combination. God, that's, uh, yeah, that sounds intense. Um, um, so, yeah, your, your book, it's called I Married a Junkie. I mean, that's... Um, that sounds intense. Could you just give a background on, on what the book entails and, and what is all um, inside of it content-wise? Yeah, my name is Tim Estes. I'm Callie's husband. And uh, the, the book, uh, first of all, heroin was my drug of choice. Um, and uh, the book, the idea from the book came, um, a lot of her competitors had kind of caught wind of, I'm a, a touring musician, so a lot of my um, shenanigans, if you will, were kind of uh, out in the public's eye, and her competitors were starting to, to to chat and and you know try to use you know that to their advantage. So we decided to you know write the book uh, to try to nip that in the bud a little. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you said you're a touring musician. Did you get into um, your drug of choice through through pain medication or was it just touring on the road or how did that come about you know it's uh it was pain medication but it wasn't due to any type of surgery or anything basically um it, it was uh you know somebody offered um roxies for me to try you know and um it wasn't out on the road it was back back here home in in south florida and uh i you know, I took them up on their offer, and uh, it was more of a party thing. And uh, I tried the Roxy's and fell in love instantly. And uh, I did that for about six months until the, uh, you know, the pills kind of dried up down here in South Florida. And by then, I was, you know, being introduced to to getting dope sick. And uh, yeah. uh, I uh, somebody was like, you know, hey, you know, for ten bucks you can get a bag of heroin. And I was like, let's do it. And then. Uh, you you know how it goes from there. Yeah, and and being from Florida, I'm sure Roxy's and and pain pills were everywhere, especially oh during the time God. of those um, those pain pill mills that were going on down there. Um, you you have no idea. It was insane down here. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I'm actually had a similar experience. I was um, in Los Angeles um, doing shows as a musician and. I noticed that opiates for me, they, I mean, I guess from the, you know, the outside perspective, they would think people think you would be like nodding out and stuff, but I, it gave me incredible amounts of motivation and energy and, and helped exactly. me get through shows. Exactly. Um, so, um, and, and you know, it's interesting. You, you, you briefly mentioned that, that, um, your wife's, um, competition was, was using your addiction as a means of exposing your practice and trying to like slander you. That's exactly. That's um, that's mind blowing. So you got you both wrote the book as a means to shed light on the subject and um, and kind of put it to rest, so to speak. 
Sort of. So I've been doing this 25 years. All I do is addiction, medicine. I work with high-profile CEOs, executives, NFL, NBA, celebrities, etc. And the more I got in the spotlight, it was on CNN and Dr. Drew and People magazine, the more my competitors, my haters out there in L.A., started to say, we don't like her because she's kind of out marketing us. She's now taking over our clients, so to speak. So they would go on public forums and trash me. And my husband has a criminal record. He's 24 felonies and 14 misdemeanors. And they would put that as mine. And they would say, you know, Callie has this criminal record, which I don't. But they would use that. And then they would talk about how could I be good at my job if my husband was such a junkie? And this went on for like a year and a half. And I sued them. I still have an ongoing lawsuit with the top top five people in the addiction space because I think that's wrong. But I said to him, why don't we do a tell-all book and put it out there and we'll call it I Married a Junkie. And we did. And it's amazing how quiet the haters got and how many people we helped in the process by putting our story out there. Oh, that's that's amazing. Um, So do you detail in the book um, how you guys – found uh, treatment for Tim or, or what, what did, what were the steps you took into, you know, getting into recovery and what was that like for both? So of we, you? we did everything. It started off with me going, okay, I'm going to do this myself. And then I realized real quick, I was way too close to the problem. So mm-hmm. then it became, let's find you a sober coach. Let's find you a therapist. We tried that. And then I said, let's go out to Colorado and get you on weed. Let's get you on marijuana uh-huh. because you got to come off, you know, this stuff and Suboxone's harsh. And so is methadone. Definitely. That didn't work. Then we tried Suboxone. That didn't work. Then we tried methadone. That didn't work. So it was kind of like we tried every possible modality that's offered for any person trying to come off a of heroin. Mm-hmm. And he finally stopped when I brought in divorce papers and packed the stuff. And I said, I'm done. And that's when he went, you know, basically, oh, shit, this is for real. Uh-huh. And so um, from that moment, did uh, Tim, did you go into uh, an inpatient facility or or what what did what did you do from that point? Well, uh, like you said, we we did. Uh, we tried Suboxone, which I mean, it worked temporarily. But as soon as as soon as I stopped that, you know, the cravings came back. And, uh, you know, methadone was just, you know, a way to, to, to keep getting high and, and not get sick. And, uh, and a lot of people understand that they use. But uh, we ended up doing was we packed up, went out to Colorado, got myself out of my surroundings and, and the drug dealers and all the people that I knew and uh, got a sober coach and worked with that person for intensely for seven to 10 days and then worked through my detox with uh, marijuana treatment a little bit and then just ended up coming back to Miami and, you know, reintegrating back into my everyday life. And uh, it's been, uh, you know, since that time out in Colorado, it's, it's been good. And how, I mean, yeah, I, I was in the medical marijuana industry for, for many years. What, how um, beneficial or how helpful were, was um, was cannabis to, to your physical withdrawal? Well, it, it believe it, it, it actually really helped. Um, I'm a firm believer that, that that first 
24-hour to 48-hour window. Uh, you're going to go through it regardless of Suboxone, uh, you know, except for methadone. But any other thing, that, that 24, the first 24 to 48 hours is, is always going to be a little bit rough. But it really helped, you know, as far as the aches, the, the, the nausea, it helped a lot with the nausea. Uh, it helped a lot with the deep bone aches, the back aches, things like that. And it really helped, which a lot of people don't really realize how important food and nutrition is when it comes to the, you know, the first initial part of your, your uh, getting clean. But it really helped with my appetite. It, it, uh, I was able to eat. I had an appetite. I was able to hold things down. Yeah, that's uh, and and definitely with with the with the aches and the nausea, it really helped. And and how long did uh, withdrawals last for you? Was it about seven to ten days, or? Yeah, I would say about I would say closer to seven days. Uh, seven days, like I said, the first first twenty four to forty eight forty eight hours was the real intense part, uh, and then uh, about a week after about a week, I, I really really started to feel better. My energy level came back and. After within 30 days, I felt like I was, you know, pretty much back to my normal self. And and um, and since then, you've been off. You've been heroin free or off heroin for how long? Two and a half, almost going on. Uh, we're going on three years, but just say two and a half years. Okay, good for you. Um, yeah, you know, I I always thought there were, there could be benefits from from marijuana treatment, it, it just, it seems like there's still this strange social stigma, especially within the NA and AA community. You know, people think, oh, you're not really clean. They think, or they believe in complete abstinence, or they even judge people who are on methadone or suboxone. So um, it, it's, it's very bizarre to me how people get kind of self-righteous looking outward on other people's recovery when they should be looking inward on themselves. But, um, do you, do you practice, um, going to meetings or, or step work or anything like that? Or, or was it? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry not to cut you off. I've started helping with the company actually, uh, doing some sober companion and sober coaching work, which a lot of that in, involves, you know, taking clients to meetings back and forth and sitting there with them. So, um, yeah, I'm actually uh, in meetings quite often, um, not daily and things like that. I would say uh, uh, once or twice a week I'm in a meeting with a client. That's pretty much, uh, you know, actually it's kind of cliche, but but helping people through the company is, is actually helping me stay clean. Oh, yeah, that, that sounds exactly like the last step, step 12 is being of service to others. And, um, if you're doing that through, through your, your business, that's, I think just as effective as if, if you had a sponsee of, of some sort. So, absolutely. um, so for, for Callie, I want to ask, um, you've been, um, doing, um, addiction coaching and running your business for how long now? years in private practice June will be eight years in private so can I ask what or how did you um how did you build build this business did you did you go to schooling for for uh, licensing and um certification or did I get your associate's degree like what what process was that to get to where you are now so I have a PhD in clinical psychology 
And then my master's is in criminal justice and my bachelor's is in psychology with addiction. So <clears throat> I had originally wanted to be an FBI agent when I was in my 20s wow. and did my assistantship, my internship at a prison, at a male prison. And I wanted to work with the crazy guys in the BSU. This is way before Criminal Minds and all that was popular. And they told me that I would end up being making about $23,000 in fetching coffee. And the best I would get in the FBI is working narcotics undercover as a prostitute. Oh my and I God. said, that doesn't sound fun. No. So I ended up with the addiction as my group of people to work with. And my mentor was ex-CIA. So he taught me body language. He taught me how to read people. And I got really good at it because we all know addicts lie. So the more I learned, the better I, I was. And then I went into nonprofit. I worked with women and children. I worked with prostitutes. I worked in juvenile detention. And then I worked in rehab. I burned myself out. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take a break. And I started working in gyms. I went and got my personal training license or certification and Pilates and yoga and then from there, I went back into this industry, well, I took it even a little bit more of a break and started a fitness company. I had the largest fitness company in the world at one point. And then I started a music company and that's how we met my husband because I took a break from the industry because I was just burnt. And then I went back into it and I realized I didn't want to work in a treatment facility because it's 95% fail rate. People come in, they're herded like cattle. They go from group to group to group, no real treatment. I want to do my own thing and I want it to be intensive. So I started private practice in 2012, and I came out with a signature program called Sober on Demand, where I bring the treatment concept to the client, and I do in five days what a treatment center fails to do in 30. And so far, I've had a 99% success rate doing intensives with people in their own home or office or on a tour bus or in the NFL. And I've had some big-name players I've worked with, and they've gotten sober doing something completely outside the box. That's that's amazing. Um, and yeah, I know from my experience dealing with staff at inpatients, it, it's it can be a really emotionally exhausting um, job to deal with. And and especially when you watch the see how bad the failure rate is. Uh, some people are, you know, they're under the safety net of um, of a facility. But then as soon as they're kind of flung into the, the real world, they are back to being left to their own devices and a lot of them relapse. I've seen it firsthand. It's, it's just insane. Um, could you just briefly describe, you said it was a five day program. Could you, could you describe what that entails or, or what, what people undergo when, when going through your program, what was it called again? Sober on demand. Sober on demand. So sober on demand is intensive. So imagine me coming into your house five hours a day to eight hours a day, every day for five days and we literally get to the root cause of why you're using drugs, alcohol, or whatever addiction, porn, sex, internet, shopping, whatever. We get to the root cause of it because your addiction is not your problem. It's your solution to your problem. I want to know what your problem is. Then we together, we create a roadmap to solve your problem. It could be, you know, you don't have the right purpose in life. You're not living your passion. Whatever the issue is, maybe you have a limiting belief system that you can't get out of this, that this is the best you can do. And we figure out together how to fix it, create a roadmap, and then move forward. So it's very unique. And sometimes I'll bring in a sober companion that'll stay 24-7 with the client while I'm doing all the intensive heavy lifting work. 
And then after that, we do hourly bonus Skype sessions for three months to six months where we make sure we're implementing that actual plan. I see. <clears throat> and um, from your experience, you talk about, you know, I, I used to... <laughs> I used to always be kind of baffled by that because I always was under the impression, yeah, drugs were my problem. And when I, people said, oh, no, that's your solution, it always caught me off guard. But, I've, yeah, I realized, yeah, my problem was myself. Um, what, have you, what have you found? Is there, is there like a – is there some kind of like popular cause that leads people to addiction? Because – I mean, that that can take a form, like you said, in anything, drugs, food, sex. Um, is it usually childhood trauma or is it or is it something, you know, deeper? Because it's it seems like the addiction rates in America are just astronomical right now. So you have two things. You have generally your uppers clients, your methamphetamines, your cocaine, your diet pill people. They're bored and they want to party. So you have that group crew people. So there's a lot of my clients that have a lot of money. They've done a lot of things, but they, they, um, they're bored. So they'll have, you know, strippers and alcohol and Coke on their yacht, so to speak. Then you have a whole other sector of people. These are your alcohol, your heroines, your opiates, your benzos. They want to escape something uncomfortable, whatever it is. So it could be childhood trauma. It could be that they hate their life. They're married. They hate their life. They hate their job. Whatever it is, and they say, well, I don't know how to fix this problem, so I'm just going to numb out with this drug to forget I have this problem. So you have two different sectors of people, and I work with both sectors. just depends on the actual client. And do you think or do you find that um, a lot of people have turned to, like, you know, street narcotics or street drugs um, because of untreated maybe mental illness, possibly ADD, ADHD, or or bipolar depression or anything like that? Well, I see a lot of, of different things. So I don't like to say people have mental illness. I don't like that label. I don't mm -hmm. like to label people, but I will say certain things. I see in the younger sector, the 18 to 25, complete failure to launch, meaning they're not motivated. They want to work three hours a day from home and make $100,000 as the CEO. <laughs> and they don't want to work hard, but they still want their, you know, $5 Starbucks every single day. Yeah. So I see that group of people, they're, you know, gaming and, and doing different drugs because they just can't launch into society. And then I also see different things throughout the age brackets. So the middle-aged people, the 45-ish, are starting to realize they're married with kids, the kids are leaving and they're either bored with their life or they're regretting decisions they made going, oh my God, my life passed me by, or they're trying to deal with certain things. Like for example, I have a client that's 50 that just got pregnant. So him and his wife, he's going, oh my God, I was ready to travel and have a great time. She's pregnant. So now he's doing Xanax to cope with the kid and her and the craziness. And I'm like, so, you know, what's the problem? And he's like, I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want any kids. So unless we solve the problem, he's going to continue to do the Xanax to numb himself out. Yeah. Um, and that's interesting. You mentioned about, you know, the younger generations, how they have these expectations of success. Um, and when those when those, um, you know, wants or needs aren't, aren't met, they, they turn to drugs to try and, you know, stay in competition. Do you do you think the cultural aspects of society are, are leading to, um, 
to influencing a lot of people to have those expectations like internet or social media? Do you think that also plays a role in the, the mindset of, of younger generations today? Oh yeah. So everything you see on internet, I tell people, everything you see on social media, Facebook, Instagram, all that is fake. So give you an example. Kim Kardashian will post a selfie, right? And everyone goes, oh my God, I want that selfie. And they stand there and they try to recreate her selfie. What they don't know is she has hair, she has makeup, she has a wardrobe designer. Then she has a film crew that follows her around for three to four hours to get that selfie. And then she photoshops the hell out of the selfie. So what they're seeing isn't exactly accurate. And on top of that, most people only post their fun pictures on Instagram and Facebook. So if you scroll through, you see, oh, this one's in Cancun and this one's in Europe and this one's skydiving and this one's mountain climbing and this one just did you know, backflips off of this thing and you're sitting at home in your PJs eating bonbons going, oh my God, that one sucked. (laughs) You have that and then you have the competition to, you know, to keep up with those people. So you have FOMO, fear of missing out. I'm not doing what they're doing. My life sucks. I'm a loser. Screw it. I'm going to get high. So you have that, but it's not necessarily reality. And I tell people, you're not seeing the behind the scenes stuff. You're just seeing how awesome their life looks, I guarantee you, because I'm with the celebrities holding their hair up when they're throwing up, they don't look like that in real life. That's not real life. But the younger generation thinks it is because that's what they grew up with. So we see a lot of Xanax, a lot of alcohol, um, some marijuana, that's kind of passe now that it's legal, lots of heroin, lots of opiates, just totally numbing out. And then they get addicted to the internet. Now they're taking selfies. Now they're trying to look cool and they're losing their jobs and they're gaming and they're in this alternate reality and none of it's real. And then I come in and I'm like, well, real life is you have to get up and go to work. And they look at me like, you got to be kidding me, right? I don't want to get a job, but you have to, unless you're going to be an influencer or you're going to be on YouTube, you are going to do something productive. You have to work. And even those kids, we're seeing, you know, Instagram shut down that girl's account. And she had a complete meltdown and tried to commit suicide because that was her whole identity was her Instagram profile. So it's also educating the younger generation that this is not reality. Reality is going, you know, to Thanksgiving with your family and hating your family. That's reality. <laughs> and how to do it sober. Yeah. Um yeah, that's amazing. I've I've seen that a lot. Do you do you also find that, you know, when people are in early recovery, they they often replace one addiction, maybe a substance abuse disorder with a more acceptable um, you know, form of 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 anything an addiction t- can take on, maybe caffeine, nicotine, sex, um, internet, uh and d- like how do you how would you address someone who's constantly trying to fill that void? Uh, with with a substance or or anything that can be, you know, in the public eye, more acceptable socially. So I hear you're sucking on the vape, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, here's what I'm going to say. And, and people hate this when I use the term addict. Everyone's like, we need to change it to substance use disorder. I'm like, no, an addict is an addict is an addict. Everybody yeah. has addictive tendencies, period. Everybody. Even if you're not addicted to a hardcore substance, I guarantee you, Everybody does something to excess, okay? Mm-hmm. When you get sober, you're still going to have those addictive tendencies. The goal is to find something that's less harmful to you 
and benefits your health. So working out can be good if you work out once a day, maybe an hour. Working out three hours a day, seven days a week becomes excessive. So it's learning how to balance those two. And when Tim got sober, he got really into, he was always into tattoos, but he got really into tattoos. He got his full back done, finished his sleeve, started on his chest. And I said, you know, hey, dude, these are expensive. These tattoos aren't cheap. And he went, well, would you rather have me spending the money on heroin or tattoos? Point, right? Good point. Yeah. That's, it's a little excessive, but you know what? It's better for you than the heroin. So go for it. That's what I say to people. If it's, if that thing is better than the thing you were doing, go for it. So the vaping is better than the smoking. Absolutely. Go for it. Now, what I do see is a lot of people come out of treatment and they get hooked on sugar and they get hooked on cigarettes and they get hooked on caffeine. Definitely. And I say, you have to be careful because when you go to meetings, those are the three things they have and all three are highly addictive. So (laughs) I would rather you vape than smoke. And I would rather you go no sugar because sugar affects your mood. Sugar is the most addictive substance on the planet, and it's almost the same chemical makeup as heroin. That's why you see a lot of heroin addicts, all of a sudden they're doing Skittles and Snickers bars and cereal and ice cream because it gives them, it gives their brain the same serotonin dopamine rush. I have a full supplement line coming out that's going to replace that. No one's done this yet where you actually fix the problems in the brain that the heroin fixes for you. So that's the next thing I tell them. If you're reaching for sugar and you're reaching for carbs and pizza and all of that, that tells me your brain isn't right. Let's do an amino acid saliva test and get the chemicals in your brain that you need so you're not reaching for that garbage. So your supplement line, is it, um, because I've researched this a little bit too, but there are natural things that can boost um serotonin dopamine um gaba all the chemicals in your brain that we would try and flood with with drugs um what information do you have regarding like natural holistic methods of of healing one's brain we have a whole supplement line that's set by drug of choice so if you came to me and said my drug of choice is heroin we have a box it's called red label and the company's called Pro Recovery RX. We're launching January 1. And the, everything in that box is designed for people who use opiates, period. That's it. We have a box for alcohol. It's the blue box. So if you're using alcohol, it depletes your brain differently than opiates. Mm-hmm. Then you have people like me. I'm an uppers person, right? I like to fly. I don't <laughs> want to sit down and drool all over myself. I want to be on 11. So my brain is completely different than somebody who does heroin. So there's a white box for me, for meth and cocaine and diet pills for uppers. And then we have a box for depression and um, sugar. Uh, That's the blue box, just like the alcohol block. We have a box for marijuana. So it depends on what you gravitate towards because your brain, if you talk to different people, everybody has a different drug of choice, right? Mm -hmm. Their brain is missing something. That's why that drug of choice makes them feel so good. So for me, when I was in the hospital, they wanted to give me morphine. Funny story. My husband went with me and I was like, I don't want morphine. I don't like morphine. I get blotchy. I get a headache. I feel nauseous. I don't like it. I don't like downers. And the doctor's like begging me to take the morphine because I'm in pain. So of course my husband goes, I'll take it. You know, she doesn't (laughs) want to, I'll take it. And I said, no. And the doctor's like, let me just give you a tiny little bit. Well, as soon as he did, my face turns 
bright red. I start crying. I, nothing works for me on the morphine, nothing. So the doctor's like, what do you want me to give you? I'm like, do you have any amphetamines? And he goes, what? I'm like, well, that's what my body likes. My body responds well to amphetamines. It just does. I feel fantastic. I feel amazing. And I'm already on 11 normally. Imagine me on amphetamines. So because my body responds well, when I do the blood work or the saliva test, you will see that my adrenals are shot, right? Mm -hmm. My adrenals are shot. That's why when I take amphetamine or caffeine or Monster or C4 or Diet Turbo T, I feel good because it's boosting my adrenal gland. So I know my adrenals are shot. If I get the right supplements to fix my adrenals, I will not reach for any upper, including caffeine. But I wouldn't know that until I actually take the test and find out I blew my adrenals out. But that coincides with the type of drug I like and the type of drug I reach for, if that makes sense. No, totally. Um, so the amphetamines, you they helped you with treating pain? No. I was joking with the doctor asking for that. <laughs> He's like, what do you want? I'm like, I want uppers. And he just looks at me. He's like, okay, crazy lady. Get off my table. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, so I want to ask, what do you think is one of the bigger problems with why addiction is so rampant and why there's a pandemic out today? I know for me, I, I have the, the opinion that it has to do with you know, the privatized prison industrial complex um, there's also a mass influence, I think, from from the music industry and um, what we see on media. Um, but it just seems like, you know, especially the opiate epidemic, it gets it keeps getting worse and worse. Overdose rates are up. Um, do you do you think it's the the criminalization of people's addictions that are is causing this kind of downward spiral into the problem we have today? Well, let me just talk a little bit about Florida for a second. So in the 80s, I'm in Miami. Miami was founded upon the cocaine boom. That's how it came out. Now, what they did about 10 years ago was we put up pill mills in Florida. You didn't have them anywhere else. You could come to Florida, walk into a pill mill or a pill clinic, a medication management clinic, and say, my elbow hurts, and they would give you a prescription for Oxy. Bam. No questions asked. That's what I think flooded the market for heroin and made the jump from the uppers, like the meth that we had problems with and the cocaine, to the downers. And when they did that, all these people came from out of state to Florida to get these medications. Well, if you get a bottle of Oxy and you have 90 pills and it costs you $30 on your copay, you're going to get addicted fairly quickly. And when you shut down the pill mill... Now you have to go buy it on the street. Well, it's $3 a pill. So you all of a sudden have to spend more. But then the pills jumped from 3 to 35 That's what made the switch from pills to heroin. When people said, I can't pay for this anymore, and I'm already addicted. And we saw the influx of heroin. And then people said, what's next? I mean, if you're already doing heroin, what's next? Oh, fentanyl. Fentanyl is next. Car fentanyl is next. And you also have another problem Back in the 80s, the dealers respected their clients. They liked the business. It was a business. And you came, you trusted your dealer, you knew the product was good, you weren't going to die, blah, blah, blah. Now you have this new generation of dealers that are basically hood rats. And they're not interested in long-term clientele. They're not interested in the business behind it. They're interested in how quick I can make money and if you die, oh, well. 
So you have that secondary problem now. So you have the people that are hooked on the pills, now hooked on the heroin, now hooked on the fentanyl, and you've got some 19-year-old punk sitting in his apartment mixing heroin and fentanyl like a chemist, and he has no idea what he's doing, and he's killing his clients. And his theory is, oh, well, there's more people. So when you put that together, and then you add the stigma, and then you mention prisons, absolutely. We're putting people in jail for marijuana or putting people in jail for having a rig in their car instead of getting them help. You put all that together, we've got a mess. And there's a very easy solution to all of it, but our government doesn't work that way. And because it doesn't monetize, it, everything is overlooked, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've seen firsthand all these all these things you're talking about, you know, uh, hot spots of fentanyl in, in heroin or just people hooked on pure fentanyl now. Um, and people, I've heard of dealers even spiking certain bags just to intentionally um, kill one of their, their customers through overdose because they know it will get, bring them more business. It's, it's pretty ex- insane, to be honest. Um, and I, I've seen what, you know, has been done in places like uh, Portugal or Switzerland where they're, they're decriminalizing drugs and, um, and providing government issue shots of heroin to addicts and weaning them off, but also providing, you know, housing, um, employment, helping them set up businesses. Um, I just, I, I still think, I don't know if, if you're agree with this, but the, the stigma against addicts is still so extreme here. I don't know if that would ever happen. Plus the, the privatized prison, um, profits that come in, it's kind of like it's a business in itself. And so they're in the business of making money. And, and the best way to do that is exploit addicts and, and their struggles. So it, it's just seems like, I don't know what type of solution there is. Um, I know they're doing safe injection sites in Canada and places like that as well. I'm sorry. I was just going to tell you that uh, we were out in Vegas on a little vacation and I walked into the Hard Rock. We stayed at the Hard Rock Hotel. I walked into the men's restroom to use the bathroom and uh, I saw the the needle uh, to to dispose your needles, to keep dirty needles from circulating through the the drug world out there. And, And basically... It was almost like the the men's restroom at the Hard Rock Hotel was now a safe injection site. You know, I, I saw a couple guys in there nodding out. You know, one guy had his head against the wall and he was, you know, he was out of it. It, it seemed like, you know, basically the Hard Rock Hotel was saying we'd rather have you in here in, in the bathrooms, you know, than, than uh, and disposing of your, your needles in this box, this uh, safe medical box. And just out there on the streets, you know, banging your dope and tossing your dirty needle down on the ground where some kid could step on it or, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, um, and in San Francisco, the, there's just last time I was there, there's needles everywhere on the streets. It, it, so I know they're trying to fight for a safe injection site facility there as well. Right. Um, uh, you know, can I ask, do you find because you said you worked with celebrities and, and that of the like, people under the spotlight of the public eye. Do you find their addictions to be much more extreme than, than you know, an everyday person? Or do you find the, the issues that they deal with um, much more intensified than, than someone who isn't um, 
exposed all over the media or is that just an entirely different challenge for you? So it's interesting. <clears throat> the root of, the, of all of it is the same, right? You're either using it to party or you're using it to escape something. So the celebrities, believe it or not, like the people you see on TV, the actors and the actresses are no different than the other people I treat, except they have a little bit more money and they spend it on drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever. But the real problem is the CEOs, the executives, the guys that are running multi-billion dollar companies, and you would have no idea they were doing it. They're married. They have the white picket fence, the, the wife, the kid, three kids, the dog, the house, the yacht. You know, they vacation in Aspen and everything is normal, you, you think. So, yeah. for example, I've got one that bounces back and forth between New York, Europe and Miami. He's married. Beautiful house here. Billion dollar house, you know, on the water. Amazing. And wife, kids, you know, her family comes over. Everything's picture perfect, except you have no idea he has a $20,000 a weekend habit between cocaine and strippers and escorts. Oh, wow. I'll go to New York and drop 20 grand. And he called me one day and he's like, he goes, I realized I had a problem when I'm doing an eight ball and I'm starting to have a heart attack. And my first thought is finish the eight ball before you call 911 because you're in Europe and you're going to get arrested. Oh that was God. his first thought. So it wouldn't be the celebrities. I mean, the NFL guys, they're just off the chain, but they have a lot of CBIs, so cognitive brain injuries. Yeah. But mostly it's the CEOs and executives that are running these companies that you look at and go, wow, what a nice life. What a nice family. You have no idea what they're doing on the backside. Do you think it's their access to, to all these like unlimited resources that, that causes it to spiral so out of control or the, also the pressures of, of maintaining a multi-billion dollar industry that, that leads them down this, this path? It's both and add in boredom. These are guys that have built multiple companies, tons of money, and they're sitting there going, now what do I do? Like my guy that I just mentioned, he's been to every country in the world. He's done everything. He's skydived, he's bungee jumped, he's been to Antarctica, he's done everything. So what's next? Like what's the next thing he can do? Well, he's kind of out of stuff. So his theory is I'll just do some cocaine and, and invite, you know, he calls them models. I'll have some models over. And fast forward 48 hours later, he's 20 grand in the hole and he's sitting there watching porn on TV with a runny nose. And he's like, this is disgusting. But that's his thing, you know, and, and that's what he does. And I see, you know, what is your bucket list? And he's like, I've done everything. What else could I possibly do? And he's right. Yeah. Um, do you think the people in those situations are harder to treat because they may have not have hit that complete rock bottom and they still have means to like continued their usage and still maintain self-sufficiency? Yes, but also even if you've hit rock bottom, you still have to want to change because a lot of people will say, okay, I hit rock bottom. I'm homeless. I don't have any money. I'm out there prostituting myself. Okay. I'm going to check into rehab and then they get into rehab 30 days in and they go, okay, I'm good. I got this. And they go out and go right back to use it. And they go right back to rock bottom and they yeah. go, okay, back to the treatment. And they know treatment is a safe place, but they never get out of that cycle of treatment and then failure and then treatment and then failure. They have to want to change just as much as my guys that have unlimited funds, because if you don't want to change, you're going to find the money and you're going to find the drugs somewhere. 
Oh yeah. Or they'll find you. Um, and th- that's my next question is, is, you know, even if someone's been through treatment and has maybe up to a year of clean time and they hit like some complacency or snag in the road, what would you recommend for people who are, have gotten out of treatment and are in the world again and face those same temptations? W- what tools can they utilize to, um, to steer clear of relapse? So I created a coaching program and a coaching workbook exactly for that. So we have a coaching program where they can call us by phone and Skype, and we have an app that goes with it. And we can communicate by app with emojis and ask them scale of one to 10 and put their food in there and their mood and kind of keeps them going and accountable in real time. And also knowing I have a session coming up, I'm struggling with something, I can bring it to a professional. So it's different than 12-step in a sense that we're professionals, we're trained, we're certified, licensed, bonded, insured, and we can handle whatever issues coming up in that moment. And then the workbook has 45 exercises in it, which is basically the now what? You know, now you're sober, now what? What's next? Mm -hmm. How do you save money? How do you eat better? How do you work out? How do you create a bucket list? How do you create a vision board? Like, what are your goals besides you got sober checkmark? What's the rest of your life look like? What's your legacy versus your obituary? So I have a workbook. It's called the Recovery Coach Workbook. Um, They can get it on Amazon if they type my name in or they can reach out to me and I can send them a workbook. But it's definitely a tool for the now what? You know, now you've got sobriety under your belt. What's the next step? For anyone out there that's listening or who is struggling right now or who is maybe, you know, a young, uh, the younger generation who's like, on the fence about experimenting with drugs, what would you have to say to anyone listening right now who's going through those issues? Well, you got to stop and ask yourself why you're doing it. You know, why are you reaching for the drug or the cake or the cigarette or the vape or the heroin? Why am I reaching for this right now and what am I getting out of it? And when you start realizing what you're getting out of it is less than you actually reaching for it, when you get more headache and more sickness and more problems, that's when you want to call somebody and say, I think I need some help with this because I'm addicted to it or it's my vice, it's my security blanket, and how do I break that cycle? Cycle, 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 cycle.